What's up, everyone? It's Brian Ford with Self-Improvement Daily. Take ownership of your personal development one tip at a time. What a treat I have for you today. It's time for yet another self-improvement sit-down. What is a self-improvement sit-down? Well, thanks for asking. Every other Sunday, instead of sharing a short two-minute tip like I normally do, I have a longer conversation with an expert in their field. In doing so, we get to slow it down, dig a few layers deeper on really important topics, and get to hear the tactics, techniques, and mentalities of some of the best in the world. Today's guest is Bill Sanders, and he is no exception. And while I introduce him a little more completely in the beginning of our conversation, I want to make things clear so that you can get the most out of his lesson. In the episode, Bill gives some incredible insight and examples related to business efficiency and how to manage others. But I want you to pay attention to the intention behind those examples. It's all about leadership, working in a team, and interpersonal communication. The message is gold, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Well, actually, let's just get to it. Self-improvement sit-down, number eight, with Bill Sanders. And we are live. Today's guest is a best-kept secret because he doesn't come on many podcasts and he isn't actively trying to grow a social media following, but his name is Bill Sanders, and he is a process innovation expert. Basically, this means that he steps into a situation, identifies the core issue, builds a system that solves the problem, and transfers knowledge to the team so it can operate seamlessly without him. He continues to deliver results for his clients who include Google, PepsiCo, HP, Microsoft, and Sprint, just to name a few, and is the founder and president of his own consultancy, Roebling and Strauss. And honestly, Bill just has a knack for improving everything he touches. While his expertise lies in the business world and enacting corporate change, I have no doubt that the lessons will apply to each and every one of us because it all comes back to one core concept, leadership. We haven't even started yet, and I have so much I want to ask, but first, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you, Brian. I appreciate that. That's quite the introduction. I hope to live up to it. Oh, you absolutely will. I have no doubt. So I don't want to waste anyone's time, your time, my time. Let's just not dance around it. I made some pretty big claims in that introduction. So you are a process innovation expert. And as described in your job role, you come in as the outsider or perceived outsider, and you try to leave things better and self-sustaining after you are done with building that system. But I want to know kind of first and foremost, what is the importance of building a system and why is that the solution we should all seek? It's a good question. In some cases, uh, you don't need a system. It's not always the, 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 the case that a, that a system is needed, but a framework is. Can you elaborate on that? So what's the difference? What's the difference between a system and a framework? So a system usually has more guide rails. Uh, I think about a system as uh, train tracks and a framework as roadway. Mm-hmm. Right. In a, in a system, once I'm, once I'm on the track, I can't get off. Uh, and this is one of the challenges we see all the time within, with building process into computer systems that become uh, very rigid and non-flexible versus road ra- roadway or, or framework where there's guidelines there for sure, but you can stop, you can slow down, you can move, you can turn left and right you have more flexibility in the process. And, and do you do something in particular to diagnose which one might be more appropriate given a certain situation? Another great question. 
I'm very broad, right? <clears throat> so I don't have, I have some industry level or vertical expertise, but for the most part, um, I, as a process expert, I come in and most everybody in the room knows more about their world than I do, hmm. but they're also living within a set of, uh, frameworks, concepts, perspectives, ideas that they're very comfortable and familiar with. And a lot of those assumptions are not defined. And so def beginning with defining the assumptions that we're operating from is, is super key. And in that process, it usually unfolds and they're the ones that can point to whether we need flexibility here or whether we need this to be locked down. Huh. So it's kind of like inception. You come in and you make them come upon the solution on their own, but you give them the freedom to explore what their assumptions are so that they can identify it for themselves. I, I think that that's already like such a humble statement from you to be like, look, they are, they know better than I do what the real issues are and what the real standards are. I'm just the one that kind of shows them the golden light and like, hey, this needs to be addressed. I mean, would, would you say that that's kind of more your role in this exchange then? A lot of times because people come at everything from their own point of view and what's painful to them to get from getting the work done or what's important, important from them. I just received an email this morning from a client who's like, hey, I, I can't leave this TBD. We have to have a date on this. And, you know, my response is I understand the need for that, but we don't even know what the scope of the problem is yet. If we don't know the scope of the problem, we can't identify the criteria for making a decision. And if we can't identify the criteria for making a decision, we can't make a decision, can't get an estimate, can't give you a date. And what most people will do is in most organizations, I say most people, that's probably not wrong, but there is a pressure for people to go ahead and stick their finger in the air and give them a date of, well, it'll be two months when they have no idea. And so then you start losing the, you know, then two months come and go problem turned out to be bigger than everybody thought it was. That date's not made. Somebody else has put their reputation on the line against that date. Now you've got friction in the organization that just doesn't need to be there. So how do you introduce that change then? Because like you said, someone kind of comes in and they're not exactly sure what the problem is. And you kind of bring that to light, but, but you're the outsider in this whole situation kind of almost like as a consultant that's the that's the issue a lot of people have with consultants being like what do you really know about what we're doing you know there you only see so much of the picture and i'm sure that kind of the assumptions that you challenge and a lot of the processes that you try and innovate upon are are operating directly against people's comfort zone so i imagine there's a lot of resistance sometimes to you asking those those questions and, and you know it might even bruise some egos based on what you find so i i guess kind of what what's your What's your strategy when you enter a situation like that, when you know you're going to be having tough conversations? Like, how, how do you be effective when you know there's going to be resistance in the situation you're entering? Well, I think there's two pieces to it. Um, the first piece is asking the right questions. And the second piece is having empathy for where people are. And mm -hmm. if you can put yourself in their shoes and in any way sense or feel the pressure um, that they're under, to produce the pain that they're under relative to the systems they're trying to work with or the other people they're trying to work with and ask questions from that perspective, you get a lot better response. Hmm. And that kind of reminds me of something that we've talked about is your first management role. 
when you were managing a remote team mm. and and how you were that outsider and you had to come in and not really ruffle any feathers just kind of be like hey this is it was a trade-off at least of like hey this is how i operate and this is how i'm effective but at the same time i don't want to upset the peace i don't want to you know i don't want to be that person that brings in this unwanted change that people won't receive well i don't i don't believe that people fear change they fear hmm. the unknown they fear what they're going to lose um and and you know I, as i wrote uh in the first chapter of uh, Hierarchy to High Performance, uh, the book we published with Great Work Cultures last year, you know, people spend about what is it, $8 million a year in the United States um, on lottery tickets, trying to change everything about their life in one fell swoop. <laughs> um, and they don't know much about that, but their perspective is that's going to benefit me. And so if you can show people the benefit of the change that you're bringing, and what's in it for them, that generally at least gets you a test where they're willing to at least look at what's going to happen. And okay, so so then benefits, I mean, benefits are, like you said, they're kind of unique to each person. But there are certain ways that you can measure at least the impact or the effect that's going on. I know something that you've shared a lot about and that we've talked about before is the difference between the activity that you're doing and the outcomes that you're achieving. So do you mind talking about the distinction and kind of which one is more valuable in your opinion? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, when, so one of the challenges, uh, I kind of fell into the accidental profession right out of college of being a project manager. And so when you're a project manager, you've got responsibility for the dates, you've got responsibility for the budget, you've got responsibility for getting things done, but you don't have any authority over the people doing the work most of the time. So you do have to dig in and, and figure out how do I measure progress? And so mm. if anybody listening has ever been in a project, you know kind of how this goes. You gathered a bunch of people in a room that have full-time jobs and regular pressure from, you know, their supervisors and you plan the project, whatever it is. And unless it's the most important thing on their list, they leave the meeting after taking their notes they go right back to their job and they get busy doing what they do every day. And in two weeks, you have another meeting to see how progress is going. And the normal question is, well, all right, so how, how, how far along are we on that? What, what would you say the percentage is? And look, nobody wants to be shown to have done nothing in two weeks. So typically you get an answer like, well, you know, we're maybe 5%, you know, and in their head, they're thinking, I did think about it in the shower this morning. Because <laughs> it's the human condition, right? We don't want to. We don't want to show up that way. So, so one of the key things that uh, principles that I learned from Tim Eskew um, is define the work in discrete enough units that I don't need a percentage complete. Define it as a deliverable. Define the work with quality criteria attached to it so you know whether it's good or not. There's a test case for what you're asking them to do so they can run it themselves and see whether or not it passes. And then it's either done or not done. So the question doesn't become how far along are we? The question becomes 
What's the output? Don't really care about the activity anymore. Um, and I think I mentioned this to you when we were having our conversation down in San Diego. Um, I think one of the best benefits is when I became a manager, my for half of my team was remote and I couldn't see when they came to work. This is long before <laughs> all of our connectivity. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see when they come to work. I didn't know what they were doing. I only got to go out because of budgets for uh, about three to four times a year. So I didn't get to spend much time with them other than on the phone and email. So how do I manage them? I ask for commitments. I define what I need from them and they're either delivering it or they're not delivering it. And so that really helped me uh, like being put in that position to begin with is I didn't want to run two systems. So I treated the team that I was working with on a day-to-day basis, exactly the same. And I found it super helpful to uh, approach it from what are they committed to do by when and what's the quality of that? And it's worked out very well. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that example back because I think that's a really powerful example of the real value of leadership and how you can kind of have hands-off leadership as long as the work is getting done. So as a leader, it is your job, or at least as a manager, kind of, you know, I would argue a manager is a leader and you'd probably agree. But as a leader, you have a team of people that are tasked to do something and you are required to stay on top of their tasks to make sure that the work overall gets done. You're kind of the umbrella that encapsulates everyone's work to make sure that the needles all point in the right way. That's kind of what a leader does is one core defined objective. But what I'm kind of hearing too is that people have their own ways and methods and it even puts pressure on people if they find themselves trying to act in a certain way to abide by what's expected of them. And that might be more inefficient on their end if they decide to work inside someone else's framework rather than their own. So as a leader, how can you, and and how do you choose to contribute to someone's output and support them to achieve the goal that they were assigned without meddling too much in their methods? Well, I think it's, I think it's mostly around how you see people and what you expect out of them. So, you know, with the very rare exception of the brand new intern fresh out of college, most of the people that we work with every day are 100% in charge of their entire life. They're raising children, they're um, saving for retirement, they're managing their money, they're buying homes, they're, they are autonomous human beings that have the ability to think and be strategic and do the right thing. So if I explain to someone what the right thing is in this context of the work they're doing and actually have the expectation that they're going to bring their whole game and we define what the outcome is, I don't need to meddle in how they do it. Hmm. Right. They need to come to me. It's trust. It's building. It's, it's setting the expectation and then building the trust around I expect if you have a problem, if you need a barrier removed, if you need more resources to complete what I'm asking you for, come to me. That's my job as a manager. Uh, okay. So you are, you are their support system in, in giving them the resources they need to then be effective in their own way. And that kind of comes back to you as a consultant coming in being like, look, I don't understand the full situation. I only have my expertise in diagnosing and then impacting the current systems that exist. You know, you're not the industry expert. 
And this is kind of the same idea and being like, okay, maybe you have more visibility into the operation and you know more than if you were a third party kind of outsider looking in. But at the same time, the people in your team are the practitioner on the ground. You know, they're the boots on the ground practitioner that is actually getting the work done and they know all of the problems better than you do. So you need to trust them to get that work done correctly. I think, I think that's, I think that's beautiful. I think that's something that a lot of leaders have an issue in realizing is having the humility of, look, I don't know everything. Well, in a lot of, uh, you know, most of us as managers or most of us, as we come up through the ranks, we did have an expertise, right? We did know all that in this particular area and now we're managing it. So the tendency is, is to try to go fix the problem rather than create the environment where they're fixing the problem. Gotcha. Right. So you have to, you know, so there's, there's another side of this too, though. There's also an educational component because I can't just let someone run with what they think is best. I have to educate them and help the rest of the team educate them on when you make certain boundary choices, like choices within these lines are fine. But once you cross this line, you have to collaborate with your peers you have to make sure that the change you're making in this system doesn't impact the change or the reporting that's coming out of another one. Right. <laughs> when you change this, you've got to understand the impact of it. And so keeping an eye over that overall picture, like, you know, leveling up so you can see the, the bigger picture, the bigger strategy, the connections, again, where the frameworks are needed, where the systems are needed, you know, where the rules yep. are needed. And then the downstream consequences of that. And I remember, and just so everyone kind of gets on the same page, I actually shared a tip about taking walking meetings. If anyone's a close follower, they might remember that. And I was referencing our conversation, Bill, of taking a walking meeting in Old Town, San Diego. So people might be familiar of our communication, but that's kind of where all of this comes from. And I preface that to say that I love that point because it reminds me of something that we talked about on that conversation, which was the difference between complicated problems and complex problems and how one does have that kind of downstream trickle a factor that affects other people's work and you need to understand the whole picture and i can't you know i i wish i remember which one was which but i guess this is a great opportunity for you to touch on that again because i thought that was so interesting kind of that distinction between complicated problems and complex problems okay um so think about a complicated system as being a watch right there's a lot of moving parts. Every part has to do its job perfectly or the watch doesn't work. Right? Okay. If you remove a part from that, so they're, these are, they're interdependent, they're connected, and they're part of a system. Hmm. But if you remove one part, what happens to the watch? It's no longer functional some point, maybe you can, maybe you move a second hand and only part of it's not functional, right? So uh, there can okay. be layers of that, but pretty much it, it's not a resilient system. And when you think about it as a, you think about complex problems more as uh, ecosystems, you start seeing that when you move, that's the same thing. They're a network, they're connected, they're interdependent. Um, each node on the network has its own agency. So hmm. you cannot, you can, you can look at all the facts around you strategically about a business. You can look at the market, you can look at your competitive set 
And you can make a strategy decision and start executing a path toward that. What you can't do is you cannot be insulated from what your competitor does when he sees what you're doing, right? So now we're in a complex system and companies generally have both a network and a hierarchical system in them. Every one of them does, depends on, you know, how structured the organization is and, you know, military, there's, there's a lot of structure there, right? Startups, not a lot of structure, a lot of network, a lot of people working on the same problems and have a wider uh, point of view. So um, leading a team that is trying to solve complex problems is, is a much different, much different thing than if everything's pretty static. And right now, one of the things we're seeing is there's always been complexity. It's always been complex problems, but more and more companies are having to deal with more and more complexity and at a greater speed. The changes are happening faster. The reactions are happening faster. The communication speed is faster in the marketplace. And so, you know, I think this, you know, three to five year plans and strategic planning, um, not a lot of value in that anymore. <laughs> Yeah, things are things are getting out of control. And I mean, that's kind of what I talk about with personal development too. You know, I, my TED talk was about do it for the story, which is about there is something out there that you don't know about and you can't plan for it because you're supposed to discover it. So it's kind of the same concept in that you're about to encounter some new problem, some new opportunity, some new situation. And it's important to have the framework to be prepared to be able to pivot or fit with that new challenge. But at the end of the day, you can't by name prepare directly for it or kind of be ready exactly to kind of like call it out by name because it is something that is undefined at this point. So it just kind of, and that's why a lot of companies are building this culture of entrepreneurship and innovation, at least kind of what I've noticed in being able to pivot and kind of go with the tide as those challenges present themselves. Well, and if you keep it to the personal level, it's like, look, you can get very, if you think you know what's coming, then the 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 selection of criteria for where you spend your time and what you learn and where you focus tends to narrow. Mm. So you miss other opportunities that come in. But more importantly, you tend to focus forward instead of focusing on the tool set you have and the ability to apply it across multiple situations. And so if you think from an athletic point of view, um, if you're a golfer, you work on your golf game. But if, mm -hmm. if you're an overall athlete and you don't know that, again, I'm kind of mixing in uh, sports and business analogies here, but if you have to pivot and go play another game, you need to be working on your strength and your core and your ability and your all around health, not just the game of golf and the techniques that are involved in that. Hmm. So it is kind of a trade-off between where do you spend your time and how do you prepare? It sounds like there are two different battles that need to be fought and they're both important for their different reasons. And it's just kind of finding that similarity between the two to be as effective as possible and prepared to move forward with whatever kind of presents itself. That's just, that's, that just applies to life right yeah, there. It applies <laughs> to life, right? And so business is the same thing. It's like you, you want to define your customer, want you to define what service you're providing, um, 
you have to keep some flexibility about how you see the company and what narrative you buy into. Uh, and you know, there's a very old, uh, story about whether you're a container company or a bucket company, right? Because if buckets are no longer in demand and you're a container company, that's pretty easy to manage. But if you see yourself as a bucket company, uh, you're done. So, right. And that just is because buckets have a more narrowed role basically. But if you talk about a container, it has a larger role. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a wider, okay. it's a wider view of the service that you're providing. That's awesome. Cool. Well, I want to move on and something that you kind of referenced is, is in that last point was just innovation. And I know that that's something that is near and dear to your heart. And I think this is a good transition, but I should have mentioned it. I know that you've already mentioned, but your book from hierarchy to high performance, uh, you have a chapter, you're one of seven co-authors of the book and your chapter is all about innovation and the importance of innovation. And it makes sense because you are the process innovation expert. So it's even in your title. Um, but if we could elaborate on what the value of innovation is and and what is it like to kind of uproot standards and what is just that importance? You know, what role does innovation play in business and in life? Um, and why, why is it something that we should pay attention to? Well, <laughs> one reason you should pay attention to it is because uh, everybody else is paying attention to it. And if you get too comfortable, they'll innovate you right out of business. When I was coming out of college, the, the word on the street is that we could expect uh, between five and seven job changes in our lifetime. It was no longer going to be go to work for one company, retire after 40 years, get your gold watch and your pension. I mean, those things were pretty well gone by the 80s, um, at least in the private sector. But they were talking about jobs and even when I was listening to them, I was thinking, I don't think you get it. And <laughs> I think if I count up, I've changed industries and counting consulting broadly as one industry. I've changed industries seven times. Wow. Right. Much less jobs because things change. Right. I mean, what I do right now, I mean, some of the projects that I'm, leading right now in terms of post-merger integration for internet advertising companies didn't even exist 20 years ago. Right. No, that's, I mean, that's something that's so interesting. We talked about too, is the reason I started a podcast is because I'm a marketer and I wanted to be as informed in the most emerging field of advertising, which I feel is audio content and specifically smart home technologies. So the very reason I have a podcast was all stemmed from trying to lean into innovation and being that guy or that individual ready to seize the opportunity when the market transitions. And it sounds like you've just been kind of leaning, you know, leaning into each and every turn um, throughout your career, you know, finding seven different industries. Um, but so specifically about innovation, because yes, innovation and change are constants. Um, and even uh, a, a quote that I really liked in your, in your book from Marshall Goldsmith is, what got you here won't get you there is just kind of that broader concept yeah. of things are going to change and you need to accept that. But then why is change good? Cause you even talked about being like, Oh, people don't always resist change. They just fear change. So like what, what benefits can innovation and change really bring? What, what's the larger purpose? 
well, if we want to get really esoteric, um, if we look at the, I believe it's the last seven years, um, the UN set a goal that by 2020, they would have raised, uh, and I'm going to get my numbers wrong here because there's an article I read a few months ago, but um, look it up. The UN beat their goal for halving poverty worldwide uh, by three years. Wow. Right. That's unbelievable. That's what innovation does. It extends resources. It saves time. It allows human beings to put their their effort and their energy and their thought processes into solving bigger and greater problems. And that's that just makes me think about something else that I've learned about you, which is that just because technology is accelerating doesn't mean it's going to be replacing our jobs. It's that our jobs then take a new form. And we, I guess it looks like we're stepping into these larger, more impactful projects and solving these bigger problems because we are more capable of addressing the complexity of these different situations. Absolutely. I mean, you're too young to remember all the hype about the paperless office, but you know, that was in the seventies and eighties and we do more paper now than ever. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, the the jobs aren't going away. The jobs are going to transform, right? And we're going to have to be there. I mean, we can no longer solve problems at a very elemental level. We've going to, as you know, if the value you have to create for an organization as an employee must be increasing all the time, or eventually you find that the value they need in order to pay you the salary you're getting has extended past your ability to produce it. And so it's one of the reasons I think about like the, the way you're thinking right now, where you're doing a podcast so that you stay on top of, you know, what, what the new technologies are out there and what's happening in marketing. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a mentor in residence for the sustainable ocean Alliance accelerator and also for read, write lab accelerator, uh, not because I do a lot of work with startups. I'm certainly not going to get any business out of it. Uh, one, it's a way for me to give back um, and tackle issues like ocean pollution and plastic and, and sustainable fishing and things that I care about. Um, but it also helps me understand what's changing, right? What's going on in the IoT world, how things are, are adapting over time. So that, if you can extend that strategically from a corporate point of view is how close are you to your customers? Like Autodesk right now right. has got three new design centers. I believe it's Boston. Uh, I know it's Boston, San Francisco. I think the other one is in Chicago or LA. I can't remember. And they're, they're focused around um, either design or marketing or certain things where they're bringing their customers in and giving them resources to build and experiment and play around solving problems that they have. And by doing that, they learn what the problems are. <laughs> I love that concept. I mean, it's just crowdsourcing, right? You just like, you really use the people. I mean, we're talking about practitioners earlier. You use the people that understand the problem and the real effect of what's going on and what you're producing. And then you just ask them, 
and just be like, look, how can we make this better? What do you like? What don't you like? And that just provides the guide rails to get you where you need to go. I think, I think that's such an underestimated and so valuable tactic that a lot of people neglect is just kind of the value of your customers. And I think the larger point there, because yeah, I mean, that's a business example, but the larger point is just education is just always putting yourself in a position to learn about the emerging ideas to become familiar with other concepts that might challenge your own standards and kind of really valuing all of these other ideas that are out there because you don't know what's best until you've tried it or learned about it. I mean, there's so many things that that could impact your life in a positive way that you might not expect. I can speak personally to many things I do now where I'm like, wow, I never thought I'd be that person. And I'm really happy that I am. So I think I think that's kind of the larger point in that, and I mean, that goes from business and personal development is just taking the time to educate yourself and being intentional. Like you said, you put yourself in these incubators, being intentional about placing yourself in situations where you can educate yourself. Absolutely. And, and this is, you know, going back to the, the corporate example is in many cases, we end up prioritizing efficiency over effectiveness. Right. Hmm. So part of my job when I come in is to separate that a little bit and go, yes, I know it's efficient for you guys to work here in a domain, in a department that, you know, but if you don't start crossing the departments up and understanding what everybody else does, you guys aren't going to be able to see. Uh, and I think I left, a, uh, I think I did a quote in the book uh, from Paul Zane Pilsner, uh, who was talking about the speed. I'll, I'll get the quote wrong right now, but um so the speed of innovation is directly correlated to the speed at which we exchange information. And in his book, uh, he talks about a, a particular set of conferences where there had been these mathematical conferences and there had been these uh, physics conferences that had been running alongside each other. And they finally did a joint conference together. And in that process, because they were now exchanging viewpoints and information from different points of view, they solved some very critical problems that both groups have been working on for a number of years. Right. It just, yeah. Building a brain trust of get, yeah. Getting all of the ideas Absolutely. in the room and just kind of throwing so like it against any, the wall. If, if you want to improve a process, get the people that operate the process, put them in the room and make them diagram it. Yeah. That reminds me of, I mean, the technique I'm sure you're familiar with is Sprint. Uh, there's a book about it. It's a, a former Google guy. I can't remember his name, unfortunately. But I mean, that's kind of what it is, is get the decision makers in the room, people who can pull from all different elements of what needs to contribute to that solution and run through structured exercise to come upon the right yeah, solution. I mean, fundamentally, that's what value mapping is, right? You, you map the entire process, you identify the nodes where you're actually creating value for the end user. And then you look at everything that's not creating value and figure out what's your risk at removing it. Right. Right. And we've cut, we've cut processes down by 80% in three hours. That, that idea perfectly ties everything back to the beginning, what we talked about with leadership at first, which is encouraging people to kind of leave their egos at the door, coming in as that outsider, trusting the experience and expertise that exists in the room, but 
kind of guiding people with the larger framework to, okay, this is how we can be impactful. Everyone plays their role. Um, and, and that's just kind of what leadership is all about. I mean, I'm sure everyone in that room specifically was a leader mm -hmm. in some respect, or at least within that organization. But, but it's also about having those leaders being able to check, check their ego at the door, be humble, and kind of come together over a common solution and uproot some of the, the misconceptions that they had about the way things needed to operate. Yeah. So I, th I think that's a, a great example that kind of brings it all back together at the end. And and since you are, I, I know that your frameworks and systems, there's there's one tactic, I mean, we're running out of time, but there's one tactic that I want to touch on at the very end here that I really found valuable. Um, and it is your concept of the four A's of alignment, agreement, accountability, and adaptability, and how that helps people become more effective when you are conscious of those four elements. So if you would you mind kind of touching on each one of those four A's quickly and the role that it plays in kind of an effective process? No, I'll be happy to. Um, you know, the interesting thing about my career is that because I've done so many varied things and I, I get I still get about 95% of my business from uh, unsolicited referral. So I, I do a broad range of, of, of projects and solve a broad range of problems. Uh, which I love because you put me in an operation situation. And if I'm not building the way it's going to operate, I get bored pretty quickly. So, <laughs> uh, you know, new and different learning are, are some of my criteria for going forward. So someone asked, oh, you know, how do you describe yourself? What do you do? Um, still relatively difficult other than I, I help teach people how to identify and solve problems at a root level to make work easier. You will forever have a job with right. that title. And so <laughs> I will forever have a job as long as people know about me. Right. So right. The, um, in, in that, you know, one of my uh, uh, colleagues and mentors ask, what's, what are the principles, the keys, the approach, like what's the core of what you do every time. And so it took me a while to think through it. Um, but really, up front, the uh, critical alignment, and that is, when I say critical alignment, I mean, we don't have to be aligned on everything, but we do have to be aligned on the critical issues of what the objectives are, who's involved, what are the boundaries, what's the budgets, you know, what are the resources? Like, we have to be aligned on why we're here and what tools we have to solve the problem up front, Right. Mm -hmm. And then you have to move to explicit agreement. Um, and that is, it basically breaks down to who is doing what for whom by when. Gotcha. And that means we've identified the solution. We have planned it. We have people that are going to take pieces of this and do the work. We have outlined the objectives and the deliverables. We know what the quality criteria is for those. And so this can be applied anywhere, right? And then the the third piece is that's fine. Is that we got everybody's commitment to do the work. Now, how are we going to monitor whether the work's being done or not? And so that transparent accountability is the third piece of it. And you know, again, you know, ignore the technology, but at some place you have to have tools in place that say, is this done or is this not done? And it has to be tracked back because. Mm -hmm. um, there's an old uh, construction thing about uh, the the one ten one hundred rule, right? If if you want to change the design of the building while it's still in the architecting phase, 
probably cost you about, if it costs you $1 to do that, if you decide you want to change it while it's being built, it's going to cost 10 times that. And if you want to decide you want to change it after it's built, it's probably going to cost you a hundred times that. So the whole goal of transparent accountability is not to pin people down. It's to get early warning on where your assumptions were wrong. I assumed I could get this done in this time with these resources. I am finding that I can't. And I know that in a, in a, in a, trust-based organization, I can raise my hand and say, I or we made a wrong assumption or guess what? New data has come in that we didn't have before and we need to rework this. And so the transparent accountability, the goal of it is not punishment. It is early warning so that you can get to the third piece, which is the adaptability. Right. Um, Moki, the elder uh, Prussian general, said that uh, no battle plan lasts past first contact with the enemy's main force. So we know that the plan is not the reality and it's not going to go that way. So we have to recognize that emotionally right up front and, and build in the ability to flex and pivot and make changes because this is less like building a building and more like going on a journey. That, yeah, that I love, I just love that example because it, it's such a generally applicable framework of these are different boxes that need to be checked and what you fill those boxes with varies per project, per person, even, you know, per hour, but that's the general just container, right? (laughs) That's the general container of what needs to get done in order for you to be effective. Cool. All right. We are just about at the end of this and I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I know it's been very business centric, which I've enjoyed, but I I believe that all of these concepts do transition into a personal development space because because these these factors, I mean, a business is kind of um, just a bunch of people working together to accomplish one common good. So the same concepts transition into one person trying to improve themselves for their own common, I guess, specific good in this case. But if there's if there's one kind of takeaway from what we've talked about, or maybe one thing that ties it all together, that would be a good summary, just kind of one last tidbit you want to share. Uh, what would you want to kind of emphasize about this conversation? Well, I th- um, read. <laughs> Educate. Get involved in things that are not in your industry. Meet people that are not like you. Travel. And what's the value of all of that? Um, it expands your perspective. It gives you the ability to look at things differently than your natural uh, perspective is. Uh, One of my mentors uh, used to talk about it in terms of sunglasses, you know, and he'd give the example. He'd he'd literally put on a pair of sunglasses that were tinted pink. And he would point to somebody in a white shirt and say, that's a pink shirt. And you can argue all day long with a person that has pink sunglasses on that, no, that's a white shirt. But until they take the sunglasses (laughs) off, they can't see the white. They will always see it as pink. And so the travel, the reading, the the meeting new people from all different social and, and financial stratas, that is what gives you more empathy, different perspective. Um, it's one of the reasons I, I love working across industries, um, 
I learn something new every day if I'm paying attention. And it gives me the ability to, okay, I think I know what the answer to that question is. Let's explore. It's, it's being curious. It's being curious about the world and how it works and knowing that, uh, you know, uh, as Covey said, the map is not the territory and we're constantly, wow. if we're smart, we are constantly revising our maps to better map the territory as the world is. That's a perfect ending point. I, I love the point of how curiosity and perspective are the core factors that drive innovation because you just want to understand that map, that landscape that's in front of you. You only have so many pieces of the puzzle that you see within your own lens. You need to acquire other lenses to be able to solve that puzzle in front of you a little bit better. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful lesson that a lot of people can take. Yeah, and them. then you propose a solution and you test it and you expand it or you move a different direction and you stay flexible and adaptable uh, in the process and resilient and uh, we solve bigger problems. I mean, we spend uh, at least a third of our life at work. There's no reason for it to be miserable. Um, let's get on with solving the problems mm -hmm. together. Awesome. Bill, where can people learn more about you and some of the things you're passionate about? My website is uh, roblingstrauss.com, R-O-E-B-L-I-N-G-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. And there's a contact form, emails there. Um, reach out. Always uh, interested in uh, meeting new people and solving new problems. Yep. Just like you said, you practice what you preach. Bill, thank you so much for coming on. Let's solve bigger problems and let's make this world better. Appreciate you. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you. I highly admire what you're doing, Brian. And uh, it was a delight to be here. Thank you. So what did you think? Not only does Bill have a natural gift for coming up with really great examples on the spot, but his experience is clearly on display in our conversation. There were a few things that stood out to me. For one, that innovation really is all around us and that people aren't afraid of change, they're just afraid of the unknown. And also knowing that things do change, it's okay to not have it all figured out. There's a natural cadence to life that includes trial and error and the quicker you can cycle through that process, the better prepared and more responsive you'll be to this ever-changing work environment. And then last, the importance of education. With technology advancing at its current rate, you need to keep up if you want to stay competitive. There was an aura of humility throughout the entire conversation that I really respected, and it's something I think we can all take home and be more conscious of. After all, we're all sharing this world and we can all accomplish more together. It's about time we learn to play nice. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Self-Improvement Daily.